This morning we're going to read in Luke chapter 10. And it's a continuation really from a talk that was given three weeks ago. And because the words in verse 1 of Luke chapter 10 say, after this. Now, three weeks ago, we considered the Lord's teaching of what true discipleship really was. And we thought of it as being the journey to joyful victory and companionship with Jesus. He invites us to come to be with him and to go with him and to be engaged in service for him. We're going to be thinking about 72 people that the Lord appoints to go out and to prepare, in a sense, the way for him when he goes. You'll see this in the reading. And I think the main point for us, and we're going to have four stopping points on the way, but the main point for us to to take for ourselves in this is that Jesus appoints believers to participate in the dangerous yet joyful work of gathering others to join them in believing in the soon arriving king. So let's read together in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Down to verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples he said privately. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. And did not see it. And to hear what you hear. And did not hear it. It's the end of our reading. 
we have an even greater blessing than the disciples had when they heard Jesus say to them, you're so blessed to see and hear the things that are going on around you. We have the entirety of God's revelation in this scripture for us. We're a blessed people. Let's take some time then to look into this. It says that after this, the Lord appointed 72. Now, some of the Bible translations that uh, you may have here use the number 70. That's because there are two major manuscript bodies that are used for, uh, by the Bible translation groups. And th there actually is evidence to say it could be either 70 or 72. And the more modern translations of the Bible uh, tend to go with uh, the 72, uh, whereas some of the older translations go with 70. But it's, it's, not, a, it's not a major point. But there is something that is important in the reality of Jesus appointing, let's stick with 72. He's, he takes 72 and sends them out. We're so often focused on the Lord having 12 and those being privileged men that he had called to himself and appointed to be apostles. That was a unique office that he gave to them that was going to continue on so that after the Lord Jesus had gone through the experience of the cross and his death and his resurrection and then his ascension to glory, the apostles would have the responsibility to go on and continue the Lord's teaching in all of the detail that he had given them so that then people would come to faith in the Lord Jesus and exercise that faith in the demonstration of their everyday lives and being gathered together into churches of God as we see it in the New Testament record for us. But here is the Lord showing us and God using Luke to show us that there were enough people that were around the Lord at the time who were liking what they were hearing and loving what they were seeing. And Jesus entrusted them and trusted them to go ahead of him to, in a sense, prepare the way for his coming. So it's encouraging, is it not, to see that there was a bigger group of people that the Lord trusted not with the same responsibility as an apostle, but with maybe a, a short-term responsibility to go and do something on his behalf. He sends them, you'll notice it says that he knew where he was going and his route was planned. His route was planned from eternity and it would go to the cross. He knew that's where he was heading. But there was going to be a period of time where he was going to take a particular journey and it was going to be through Galilee and it would go off into a region beyond the Jordan to the Gentiles and then back in through Judea and so on. And it would eventually bring him to Jerusalem to his crucifixion. The Lord had that mapped out. And he sends the disciples that were here in this group of 72, two by two, to go and to in a sense, prepare the people in the towns to which he's going. It could be a matter of efficiency if you think about it. The Lord says, you're going to go to some towns and they're going to reject you. And if there was that rejection, then would the Lord stop at those places? I don't think he would. I think he would pass on to the places where the people that he had sent before him, where there was a welcome. Now, there's something symbolic about 70 or 72. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 10... Genesis chapter 10 has a list of all the people groups that uh, 
were on the earth back at that time. And, and the Jewish people looked at that as being a summary of all the peoples that were in the known world at that time. Work your way through the list. If you use a Hebrew manuscript, you end up with 70. If you take the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you end up with 72. It's a description of, um, in a sense, the whole world. So I don't think there's any accident in the Lord sending out 70 or 72, whichever it is, to go out and to prepare the way. Remember, this is, this is Luke's reason for writing as well. This is his, his, one of his broad reasons is to reveal through his writings that Jesus is the saviour of the world. He has come to be that. So the Lord sends out 72, not just to the Jews, but also into Gentile areas, because that was God's, always God's intention, that it would reach beyond the Jews and that he would be the saviour for all peoples on the earth. Why is he the saviour for all peoples, wherever they are, whatever their ethnic association on the earth? When we read in Romans chapter 1, we have a description there of humanity and all of its sinful brokenness. And it says that God has revealed himself through everything that has been made so everyone, all people, are without excuse. That's Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Every thinking person with the capacity to understand what is around them, God has shown himself to them through the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. It's for that reason that Jesus is the saviour of the world, not just of the Jews. That he is the name and the only name that's given among men under heaven by which people will be saved. Regardless of their ethnic um, background and heritage and so on. It's for everybody. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11, uh, Paul says this. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul's intention as, as a man who had a calling from the Lord Jesus, particularly to go and to preach to the Gentiles, was making it his aim to get as far as he could in the known world at that time. Spain was the end of the world as far as they were concerned. That was his intention to go there with the gospel. He was going to all peoples, without distinction, with the good news that Jesus is the only saviour. You might have noticed in the news a couple of weeks ago, John Allen Chow, uh, the young 27-year-old missionary who went himself to the North Sentinel Island in the Indian Ocean and was speared to death by the tribal peoples that are supposedly protected and people aren't to go there and the, the governments in that region say you're not to go there. His reason for going ultimately led to the loss of his life was that he would share Jesus with them because these people are without excuse that's what the scriptures say and he was prepared to go and to share with them the good news of Jesus the good news of the kingdom of God is for everyone it's a universal gospel for the universal problem of sin. 
That's our first stopping point. The second thing I'd like us to see from this is that, and this is really wonderful, is that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are called by Jesus to be engaged not just in sowing the good news of the gospel, but to be engaged in the harvest. Did you notice what the Lord said to them as they went out? He said, you go and actually pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. They might send more laborers because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. It's a harvest. Now, back in Luke 8, Jesus has shared with the people and with the disciples the well-known parable of the sower and the seed. And the seed is the word of God which is shared. And under God's sovereignty, there will be a fruitfulness that comes when people receive the message and the work of God to bring life where there was death, to transform that which was sinful and ruined and under God's wrath, to bring a person out from under his wrath through faith in Jesus who has endured that on the cross, means there will be fruit. Very often, we do have our focus, I wonder, on the matter of sowing and the sharing of the word where we can. And it's right that we do that. But notice what Jesus says here to the 72 as they go ahead of him into the towns where Jesus may not have been before. He says, you're to go and you're going into a harvest. And you speak to the Lord of the harvest about this. The Lord was saying that there's something that has already, in a sense, been completed by God. If you think about it, a farmer goes out and sows the seed, has to leave it, and then comes back when the harvest is ready to gather in. Who's done the work in between? It's not the farmer, it's God. Uh, and that's in the, the physical, literal sense, as well as in the metaphorical we've got here, where the sowing of the seed, there is a responsibility on us to, to share the good news of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and the kingdom that's associated with that, to share that, God then does his work. And then he says, look, be, be involved in this harvest as well. There's a present day harvest. We sh this is what's hit me from this this week, is that it's not something we're just to sit back and think is going to be entirely revealed in the future. Of course, there's that aspect of us sharing the word of God with people and sometimes we think there's no response. Maybe in the future, God will, will show us somebody who as a consequence of hearing it through us and through other people has come to faith. What a joy that will be. But there's to be a harvest now. The Lord said, you appeal, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out more, to be engaged in this activity of gathering in. We've got this urgency that's expressed by the Lord. He says, go and pray for more to come and to be engaged in bringing in those that God has brought to himself. What does this speak of? And I don't think we're stretching it too far, but God wants us to sow, yes, but he wants us to be engaged in the activity of gathering those who have responded by faith as given that by God 
for eternal life to be gathered together, to rejoice together in what God has done. It's the gathering in of the fruit. That's why there are churches of God. What are churches? Churches are gatherings of the redeemed ones, those in whom God has done his work, who are gathered together to rejoice in the harvest. Of course, in all of its fullness, it's yet to be revealed, but there is a work now uh, that we're to be engaged in in gathering people together. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Overseers in Manchester met earlier this week and I was thinking over this topic and David King shared Psalm 126 with us just as a, an introduction to our time of discussion and prayer, matters relating to the church and people in the church. Psalm 126 is the song of those of Israel who had come back from captivity and their prayer to the Lord was, and it's a prayer that we can share in our circumstances today, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. They were longing for the refreshing of God to come. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. They were thinking of God bringing about a fruitfulness in the restored um, lives back in a place they had been away from for so long. Sometimes we can, we can get down and disheartened, disheartened, can we not? That it doesn't seem as though uh, there are others being gathered in. But as we're faithful in the sowing, God does his work and we should be sensitive and aware too that there's a work for gathering in. The harvest is there for us all to enjoy. My third point Notice that the Lord says that the mission for the 72 is dangerous. They will be defenseless. And because of that, they will learn to be dependent on God. And in so doing, will enjoy the victory and the joy of being engaged in God's service. The Lord says, I'm sending you as lambs to wolves. You know what a wolf does to a lamb. The lamb is defenseless. But when you're going past a field of sheep and lambs, what do you pay attention to? You pay attention to the lambs, don't you? We have a tendency to ignore the sheep. There's something wonderfully vibrant and delightful about lambs. I wonder if the Lord is saying something to us about approach, not simply about the dangers of going into a world where there is this, particularly today, even in our society, but in some places in the world, there is this ferocious opposition to, the, to, to Christ. There is that opposition. The Lord says you're going to go into it. You have to go into it because God is working out his purposes of gathering those to himself, even those whose hearts are that way inclined to begin with. We were all there. We were all hostile to God until he showed us the glory of the Savior. So we're to go. It's dangerous. We'll be defenseless like a little lamb. But I wonder if the Lord is saying something to them about their, their approach. We need to be careful in the way we say things and even in body language when we're conveying the joys of the glory 
of the gospel of the kingdom, which is all to do about Christ. We're to do it in a winsome way, in a delightful, attractive way, are we not? It's not about us at all. We're pointing to the one who himself said he had come to fulfill all scripture. In Isaiah 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The Lord does not call us to engage in something he was not prepared to do himself. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. John the Baptist pointed him out, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus, when he's talking to his followers after his resurrection in John 20, verse 21, says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. God the Father sent the Son in his apparent defenselessness and in weakness, knowing that it was through that apparent weakness that the glorious, majestic, unparalleled, unrivaled strength and power of God would be revealed through his sacrifice on the cross. So calls us to go aware of the dangers we might lose our lives why not if it's for the glory of God we'll go and sometimes we might feel absolutely defenseless and there's sometimes there's nothing we can say but stand there and take it and receive whatever comes why not if God receives the glory but we go and we're dependent on him I think that's what the Lord was saying to the 72. Look, this is going to be dangerous. You're going to be like lambs before wolves. But you go with that, that approach. And you go there. And you will learn quickly. That there's nothing in yourselves that you can rely upon. But you rely on me. And you crawl out to the Lord of the harvest. The one who is over it all. And you'll learn who God is. When you step out in faith. To prepare the way for me as I following after takes them into joyful victory again just going to Paul because Paul is so often one that the Lord uses to to bring out things relating to this and if you think about it Paul and Luke were such close companions that um, you, you permit me to go to Paul so often but in 2 Corinthians 3 Paul said about himself and his companions he says our sufficiency is from God he said, we're not sufficient in ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. And Paul was the one who was going out into all of the known world with the universal gospel that addresses the universal problem of sin, with the one name of the one saviour of Jesus. And he goes out as a lamb before wolves. And he will stand, of course, and say what must be said on behalf of Christ. But he knows that his sufficiency at all times is from God, what God provides for him. It takes us into victory. Do you notice that remarkable statement the Lord says whenever the 72 return with joy? Uh, they say, Lord, even the demons or the evil spirits are subject to us in your name. They realize that it wasn't their own power. It was in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's important. Jesus said, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. The sense of it in the Greek is I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
I believe this is the experience that the Lord had. It's a symbolic, metaphorical reference to him knowing as the 72 went out with the power of his name to heal and to cast out demons and to preach the kingdom that the authority and power that Satan had over people was being broken. And it was as if he was falling from his own self-exalted place of prominence. I'm not persuaded that this is a reference back to when Satan was cast out of heaven at his rebellion against God in the beginning. I'm persuaded this is the Lord conveying in a, a very um, engaging way the reality of what happens when 72 or me and you go and with the message of the only Savior, Jesus Christ, go and share that. And there is a transformation that occurs in somebody's life by the working of God. There's another one. The authority and the power of Satan is broken and forever. Just cast out from his place. He doesn't have any authority over that life anymore. That's what the scriptures tell us. And we're to live as people where Satan has no foothold in our lives. But of course he comes after us. Notice that the Lord said to them, um, he carried on in this, in verse 19, he says, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. I wonder if the Lord was going back to something in Genesis 3. Do you remember the, the pronouncement of God against Satan, the adversary who had embodied himself in some way in the serpent that deceived Eve and that led to the, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. The pronouncement of God's judgment there was, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Genesis 3.15, and between your offspring and her offspring. That's humanity. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a wide application there that humanity will not be subject to Satan forever. That's glorious. But there's also the narrow application where the offspring points to Christ, who is the man, who is God, who came, of course, to defeat Satan and sin. But he brings then believing humanity into the joy of the victory, of being able to stand on the head of the serpent. Paul again, Romans 16, verse 20, people going through difficult opposition circumstances says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That was a promise to believers in the church of God. This is going on around you. You're facing all this opposition, but God is working towards something where you will crush Satan. Your feet will stand on his head. It was in those days the sign of, of victory. And if someone wanted to save their lives as a defeated one, uh, they would lie down and they would allow the victor to put their, um, their foot on their head or on their neck. And if the victor was merciful, they wouldn't take their life. But it was the prerogative of the victor to take that person's head off if they wanted. God, take the head off. And the head of the adversary will be crushed under our feet because of the God who became human to bring us into a shared victory with him. 
My fourth stopping point is my last one, which is, I think there's a caution here for us to be careful as Christians. To be careful that our joy in the service of God does not exceed our joy in our relationship with God. Very easy for that to be the case. It says they returned the 72 with joy. Why? Because of they were participating in a victory where they were able to heal people and cast out demons in the name of the Lord. Of course you would rejoice to see a life set free. And there's a joy for us when we're engaged in the sharing of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And we see lives set free. There's a joy in that, of course there is, and we're to have joy in that. But the Lord says, he doesn't say don't rejoice in it. The use of the language here is saying, rejoice in that less than your joy that your names are written in heaven. You have an eternal relationship with my Father, which is all of his working, that you're going to joy forever. So don't let the activity that you do for him and all of the joy of what it is trump that relationship in any way. The joy of that relationship. Sometimes we can get so busy, um, possibly, of being caught up in the, the joyful service it is supposed to be joyful service. Sometimes it's not, but the generally joyful service of being engaged with Christ to speak of him to others. And we can forget the very relationship that he has brought us into, which should be the source of all deepest joy. So the Lord was not saying, please don't read that. The Lord wasn't saying you shouldn't have joy whenever we see lives released from the power and the authority of Satan and brought into the kingdom of, this, of God's Son. Of course we're to joy in that, but that joy is to be eclipsed by the joy that we have in our relationship with God through Christ. Do you notice that Jesus rejoiced too? Verse 21, it says that he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This whole episode, in a sense, causes great rejoicing for Jesus and it's in the Holy Spirit. Luke is very careful throughout his gospel to say that Jesus did things in the power of the Holy Spirit or guided by the Holy Spirit and here we have him rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. It's all about relationship there isn't it? God the Son and his partnership with God the Father and God the Spirit working together for the glorious joy of humanity that he was bringing to himself. He rejoices as these believing ones have gone out and have come back and have enjoyed the victory of service. He's full of the joy. But the way it's recorded for us points us to his joy being in the relationship that existed from all of eternity first. I think it's a reinforcing point for the one we've just made. The Lord is encouraging us to come and to go and to serve and to gather others to enjoy him. And the Lord, I think, in his challenge to the, the joyful returning ones, is telling us to have heavenly priorities over the earthly things, even if those earthly things are actually the service of God, our joy in our relationship with God. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For when, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. There's the deepest joy, is knowing that in Christ we are with God. But that then should motivate everything that we do in service for him. So just to conclude, a suggestion in looking at this, and we haven't been able to touch on some of the other texts in there just for time. Jesus appoints us today because the great commission of Matthew 28 extends to us. Jesus appoints us today to participate in the dangerous yet joyful work of gathering others to join us in believing in the soon coming King. He is coming. And we have an opportunity this time of the year to speak of his, his first coming. And that can lead us to a conversation about his future coming. It's glorious to be engaged with him. Remembering that the good news is for everyone everywhere. Whatever their background. Whatever their religious affiliation. Whatever their upbringing thinking as well that we're not just to be engaged in the matter of sowing, but to look for opportunities to enjoy the joy of gathering in the harvest and inviting others to come and share with us in glorifying God. Knowing all the while that it is going to be dangerous, we're going to appear defenseless and feel it at times, but through that we're going to become more dependent on God as he gives us the joy as we step into the victory. Remembering always, though, that our joy in our relationship with him through Christ and by his indwelling spirit must be greater than any joy that we have in his service here on earth. What a remarkable little section. Luke's the only writer that records it. But we take joy from what it is that he has given to us. Let's give our thanks to God and pray.